Is this thing on? Tap, 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 tap. Don't you have to tap it to get that sound? <laughs> if you can make that sound, what do we need a microphone for you? For? Let me count down. Five, four, three, two, one. John Tulin, the theme from Telstar. Not Star Trek or something like that? That's what it sounds like. Telstar. Hmm. Who knew? Yeah. All right, Warner <laughs> Brothers. <laughs> See what you do with that. John Tulin, that was, what do you know, theme? Modified version? Because I couldn't play the Telstar because we have archaeology from space today with Sarah Parkak, how the future shapes our past. And so naturally I thought of Telstar. In all the news that isn't, Trump, this is, I, I had to go this way, I can't take it anymore. <laughs> the startup Beyond Beyond Meat launches a hamburger made entirely of protons. Miley Cyrus says she thought all guys were evil until meeting Cody Simpson. Google claims its quantum com computer can do the impossible in 200 seconds, although the possible, what with all the red tape, will still take 10,000 years. The universe is made of tiny bubbles containing many universes, scientists say. Heck, I've been saying that for years. Don Ho said it. Remember Tiny Bubbles? That's what Don what? Ho was saying in Tiny Bubbles. <laughs> Hi, Carol, you're late. The audience is still filing in. You go to the office first, and you get a pass. <laughs> you were a teacher. You know better. All right, Google Pixel 4 phones use radar to see you coming, but you can evade it by crawling on the floor in a zigzag pattern to your phone. Uh, continuing protests have driven down the price of a parking space in central Hong Kong to 7.6 million Hong Kong dollars. This is all the news that isn't Trump. See, there's not much, but you, got, you can find a no. few crumbs. A newly discovered beetle has been named after climate activist Greta Thunberg. According to entomologist Michael Darby, Nilopodis gretae, a one-millimeter-long eyeless and wingless beetle, was named after Greta to honor her outstanding contribution in raising environmental awareness and not so much for the bug's pigtail-like antennae. That's uh, <laughs> Nilopodis gretae. And it's wingless and, uh, and yeah, everything else-less? And blind, and, but it, it has like these, uh, oh, these uh, antennae here look like pigtails. This is Greta. And she has pigtails? Oh, yeah, she's very known for her pigtails. So, but they don't stand straight up on her head. <laughs> so, so it, actually, it, it was a, a good thing, compliment, in other words. It doesn't seem like an honor. Though. It doesn't. No. Well, you know what, for example, the moth... Uh, Neopala uh, Donald Trumpy is known for its distinctive blonde head and comparatively small genitals. So that's definitely <laughs> a gotcha. Yeah. Fruit flies forced to, to stare into a phone 12 hours a day lost all interest in bananas. You know, you're not really supposed to fact check all of my information here. We can assume it's doubtful. <laughs> that doesn't even seem scientific. Well, some, most scientific studies are not scientific, if you ask me. But no one does. I don't know why. Uh, McDonald's has been grabbing metadata from customers ordering at their drive throughs but they 
to no avail, really, because they found out what everybody already knew. Everyone always orders the same thing at McDonald's each time you go. They never change your order. So having the data, all the data in the world is not going to change. Useless, that. yes. Yeah. That's, for, that's why people go to McDonald's for the same thing. If you don't want the same thing, you go to Taco Bell, where you get the double chalupa, cheesy fiesta potatoes, and the large sour strawberry Skittles freeze. So that's, Yikes. But then you get that all the time. Oh. There's no way around it. Thank you. <laughs> According to a McAfee cybersecurity, the most dangerous celebrity online most likely to land searchers on malicious websites is actress Alexis Bledel from Gilmore Girls. Did you ever see her? No. They're all horrible on Gilmore Girls. Uh, I'm familiar. Oh. Yeah. And she was also in Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants. So if you're looking up Traveling Pants, you'll end up on a malicious <laughs> website. Or a... Second uh, malicious uh, uh, celebrities is uh, James Corden. And the third is Game of Thrones star Sophie Turner. And this is important. Ill fame is ill fleet. Uh, because Courtney Kardashian, who was n- number one cyber risk last year for looking up, oh. has plunged to 222nd. So, Any reason for that? Courtney Kardashian. <laughs> reason enough. <laughs> An Israeli startup that promotes a homegrown marijuana system has signed on Snoop Dogg <laughs> to head their Shizzle My Schnozzle campaign. <laughs> Now, see, that makes sense. I'm sorry it does. <laughs> rats driving little cars have less stress than rats who have to hoof it. <laughs> However, rat passengers have greatly increased stress levels, often eating the driver. Rats? And that's all the news that isn't Trump, <laughs> because Neopalpa Donald Trumpy is a moth. How about this, then, if you don't like that? Uh, an un- underdiagnosed condition worth looking into. Forget shingles for a minute. Auto brewery syndrome. Brewery? Auto brewery syndrome. Okay. Police and doctors didn't believe a 46-year-old man who swore that he hadn't had alcohol before he was arrested on suspicion of drunken driving because his blood alcohol level was 0.2, more than twice the legal limit for o- operating a car. He refused a breathalyzer test, was hospitalized, and later released. But the facts remain in contention. Researchers discovered the unusual truth. Fungi, fungi in the man's digestive system was turning carbohydrates into alcohol, a rarely diagnosed condition known as autobrewery syndrome. Ah. Guys would die for this syndrome. This is, this is, a, <laughs> is it reproducible is the question. Saves you a trip. Point, point two? <laughs> In people with the syndrome, fermenting fungi or bacteria in the gut produce ethanol and can cause the patients to show signs of drunkenness, a condition known as gut fermentation syndrome, also known as. I like the other one better. I got gut fermentation. Who's going to admit that? If, they, if you guys say, you know, the nurse says to you, can you, do you have any syndromes? I have auto brewery. Oh. Uh, can a, a gut fermentation, you're not going to say, like your gut is fermenting. And ethanol. Can occur in otherwise healthy people, but is more common in patients with diabetes, obesity, or Crohn's disease. A person is intoxicated from this fermenting yeast, and it's a horrible illness. Well, not in Wisconsin. They're lining up to get it. Archaeology from Space is the name of the book, How the Future Shapes Our Past. Sarah Parkak is our guest. We have her on the line right now, and uh, it all began uh, with her grandfather in Maine, is the way the story goes. Let's find out if that's true. Hi, Sarah. Are you there? Hey, good morning. Good morning. Nice to talk with you. Great to be here. Did it start with your grandfather in Maine? Yes, yes. Um, my 
grandfather was a forestry professor at the University of Maine in Orono, and he was one of the pioneers in using um, aerial photographs in forestry back in the 40s, 50s, and 60s. So he's the reason I took my first remote sensing class as an undergraduate. Yeah, and that was Harold Young, is that right? Yes. Yeah. And as a child, did you look at those often, and did he show them to you? And you see, you mentioned like three D things you saw too that he had that three D. Yeah. So, so back in the back in the day, um, they uh, they used something called a stereoscope, which right. is sort of like a set of binoculars, and you peer down and you look at a set of overlapping photographs, and you can actually see them in three D that way. So I grew up going to his office and and seeing those images. Yeah. So this is now you were an archaeologist before there was space archaeology. Yeah, yes. Um, I, I d- didn't take my first class until I was a senior as, as an undergrad, um, but I'd already taken a lot of uh, archaeology classes, and I'd been very lucky to, to get to go on a bunch of digs. Yeah. And what first drew your attention to the, to, the, to the very fact of using satellites to help image sites for archaeology? So, you know, with, with the work my grandfather had done, um, I just assumed that lots of people had used um, satellite imagery, and when I took the class, I realized that not many people had, and so I decided to go on to grad school to develop kind of tools and techniques to map sites in Egypt. Oh, I see. You are, I guess, an Egyptologist. Is that fair to say? Yes, yeah, that's my, my, my fancy academic title. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and did did people do things like from plane photograph from planes in in the early days and get overviews that way of, of sites? Yeah, we we definitely have um, uh, early photographs from the 1920s and 1940 or 1920s 1930s of sites in Egypt, in particular from the Royal Air Force or so the British that were there. Um, and I know earlier archaeologists used them, but then after that, we really we don't really see much evidence of of, of aerial photos being applied in Egypt. Yeah. But uh, all hell broke loose when, when NASA made their satellites available. That's right. So in the sort of in the 70s and 80s, you know, with the launch of the satellite program, um, you know, a few archaeologists started using um, satellite imagery. And then really in the 1990s and early 2000s, that's when the, the field really took off, if you'll excuse the pun. Yeah. Weren't they spy satellites at first? And, and that would have been kind of secretive. And finally they released the, the data. Yeah, so in the 1960s and early 70s, of course, the U.S. was um, in the midst of a big Cold War with, with Russia, and there were um, high-resolution black-and-white space photographs that were taken to spy on a lot of the activities in Eastern Europe. But um, fortunately for us, a lot of images were taken of areas around the Middle East. And, of course, you know, within the last 60 or so years, so many of those landscapes have changed radically. So we've been able to use those images to, to help look at site changes. Yeah. And so at first they were like, what, 15 to 30 meters in terms of resolutions? Yeah, so the, um, in, the, in the sort of 70s, 80s, even into early 90s, yeah, you have 30 meters and 15 meters and 10 meters, and then in the early 2000s we're down to 1 meter and then 0.6 meters, and now um, we have 0.3 meter data. Yeah, and there's this thing called LIDAR, is that correct? Yeah, so LIDAR is a sensor system that can be flown on an airplane or a drone uh, or, or a helicopter, and it stands for light detection and ranging. So it's a laser mapping system that allows uh, millions of points to be taken, and then you can strip away overlaying vegetation and see, um, see what's under trees. That's amazing. And that's the same thing they use in, in self-driving cars, LIDAR. It's the same it? exact thing, correct. Yeah. And so we went, we went from the uh, corona spy imagery to something much more sophisticated. Yeah, and, and there's a way of merging these various technologies so that you get like a, a 3D uh, image. Is that correct? 
Yes, so what you can do is you can sort of drape the very high-resolution imagery um, over... Uh, the um, over the 3D mapping, and you can get just really incredible high-resolution terrain maps. So you yeah. get a really great picture of what's there. Yeah. So what what can you now? As before, you might have seen just certain features that were apparent on the ground, but now you can see more than that. You can see really study, subtle details of, uh, of of potential buried structures. Um, you can see um, or get the hints of things that are completely invisible because they're degrading sort of bits of stone or mud brick, and you're able to see the outlines of tombs or walls or ditches, um, and that helps us to pinpoint exactly where to excavate. And, and much of this is just not visible at all on the ground or, or above the ground? Correct. I mean, you, may, you, you know you're on an archaeological site, and you may see some hints of things, but what the satellite imagery and the other technologies allow you to do is get a complete picture of what's there. So when you first applied this to your study to Egypt, uh, sites in Egypt, uh, did you, this was something revealed that you never knew was there before? I mean, what happened? So, yeah, so when I first started doing this work in Egypt, um, I was interested in seeing if it could just detect whole sites. So I did a lot of mapping work um, in the Delta and an area northeast of Cairo and then an area of Middle Egypt, about a five-hour drive south of Cairo, and ended up mapping about 140 sites. Um, that weren't in any databases. So, I mean, they're old sites, but they're technically previously undocumented. So, uh, yeah, so that, that's really where, where I started to try to test the technology to see what worked and, of course, what didn't work, and then refining it before I applied it to um, looking for specific features on site. Was that the Ijtawi site? Or? So, so, yeah, so that, that, happened, that study happened a little bit later. Um, so um, or about 3,800 years ago in Egypt, you have a period of time called the Middle Kingdom, which is its kind of great Renaissance period, and they moved the capital to an area just south of Cairo. Um, but that site was covered over by um, the Nile River as it shifted and moved. So we used radar imagery to map the old um, course of the Nile, and then did coring work, and we pinpointed what we thought could be a suburb of that city. Ah, so this is where El Licht is now? That, that's right. So that's the site where I, I co-direct a project with Egypt's um, Ministry of Antiquities, and we're excavating in the cemetery, but we're really interested in looking at, um, you know, big, big questions around what life was like um, almost 4,000 years ago. Yeah. And one of the first things you find is how much looting there's been, I suppose, in the- Yes, so unfortunately, you know, after the Arab Spring, of course, throughout the Middle East and including Egypt, um, there's just been a huge amount of looting. And so at that site in particular, um, there unfortunately was a lot of looting, and that's really what drew me to to working there. So we're documenting a lot of the damage, but also kind of trying to figure out, like, what, you know, okay, looting happened, but there's a lot that's been revealed, so we're mapping mapping those tombs. Yeah. So now, really, it's about archaeology and not, you know, satellite technology, but it's an amazing tool to get you, get to your work on the ground, correct? That's right. It's just, it's a great, it's a great first step. And so, but like in this case here, when you're at uh, El Licht, uh, and um, what, what, what do you, you get this site and you get the, the scenes from the air, the diagrams or the site uh, overviews, and then uh, when you, and then hopefully you get a grant or something to go on and actually dig it, right? 
That's right. Yeah. So we, I work, um, I work with a pretty big team there between 80 and 90 people. So my professional staff, which of course includes a lot of Egyptian experts, you know, people looking at pottery and bones and drawing the architecture. I have an Egyptian team of professional archaeologists, uh, and then my, my work crew from the local villages. So yeah, it's a pretty big, operation and um, of course we're always applying for for funding and, and hoping to get grants but then we actually go in and we're, we're excavating these mm-hmm. these different parts of the site yeah and and just by the by and so forth this all all these artifacts remain in Egypt then I appreciate hundred percent we yeah. we I tell people we um, we take notes and we take pictures and that's the only thing we take from Egypt yeah. um, everything stays in the country because the, the British Museum is one of the world's largest looters of artifacts that that is that is right. A lot of those objects will probably end up going going back at some point. Yeah, hopefully, really. Um, all right, so you're on the ground now, and you start you you do maps on the ground as as, as the revealed by the air, and you do you excavate site by site or segment by segment. Yeah. So depending on where in the world we're working, so you know I work on a lot of collaborative remote sensing projects, and you know I, I can't as much as I'd like to dig everywhere. I, I can't and don't have the, the time. I have a teaching job, so we'll collaborate with teams, and then they'll take the data and they'll go and they'll choose what sites to map or survey or excavate. Um, in Egypt, the Lish project is a pretty big project, so we're focusing on one part of the site that's in the southern part of Lish, um, and that's going to be a really long-term documentation project. But typically, you take take your data into the field, and you have to confirm. So it's called ground-truthing, and you're checking to see if what you see on the ground confirmed or matched what you saw from the aerial photography or space images. Yeah, so it's still painstaking work, and there's a, there's a great deal of labor involved. Enormous labor, yes. And um, can, can you just take us, uh, like if we're down there, what, what was your first major discovery? Boy, um, I've been very lucky to... Um, uh, to, to work in many different places, and I guess it depends on what you what you determine to be major. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm I'm really interested in sort of the scale of of archaeological sites. So we use the um, imagery to map sites all over Egypt, and we believe what we found are three thousand um, previously undocumented sites across the whole country. Um, and that sort of matches up with what my colleagues are finding in places like Syria and Iraq. Everywhere people look, they're finding thousands upon thousands of previously undocumented sites. Yeah. And, and even places that have been looted have much remaining in them that, did, that they didn't get to. Like, I, I'm thinking of, I, I read this, I really love this part about Intef's tomb. That's, that's, that's right, yeah. So yeah. Intef was a major official during the 12th um, dynasty of Egypt, which is this kind of high, high point of the, of the Middle Kingdom. And even though looters had been in the tomb and had, had taken a lot, there's still so much there that really allows us to reconstruct um, what the tomb looked like. And, um, you know, things like human remains, so we're analyzing the bones and we're looking at the health of the people that lived thousands of years ago. And it tells us so much about daily life that we wouldn't have known otherwise. Yes, and in the book you actually do a story about daily life in that time. In the time of Intef, and Intef was not a ruler, but he was a higher up in the in the government or whatever the ruling. Yeah, class. he was. He was a very high-ranking official, so he would would have been the um, the head of the army and the head of the treasury. Um, so, kind of like a very senior government official today. Yeah, and his tomb was was actually trashed. Probably back in the day or shortly after, huh? because I, I'm guessing it yeah. probably was. You know, who was he? Did he did he anger some people? Were they taking revenge? Um, we, we still have a lot of questions about about what's there. Yeah, and the the, the false door of Intef probably will go down in history now. 
Yeah, it is beautiful. So it's about two meters tall, and it's got a bit of his autobiography on it. It's beautifully carved, and it was still there when we excavated, which we were pretty excited to see. Yeah, and it was frustrating because most of the stuff that talked about him, even his name originally was not found there because it had all been vandalized and chipped or taken away. That's right, and that's right. We, we, you know, we, I thought the tomb had been completely denuded of, of material culture, and I was wrong. Yeah. Um, so hopefully we'll just continue to learn more about him. But you, you got through the door, and his mother was there. That's right, yeah. So in, in, in some tombs in the Old Kingdom, um, the officials actually honor their mothers, which says a lot about sort of how women were venerated mm-hmm. um, in ancient Egypt, and that, that, was, um, that was really neat to see. Yeah, well, that's an amazing thing. Now and and you say how many sites now are have been new sites have been found in in Egypt alone? Uh, Three thousand. That's amazing. And, yeah, and it's you know it seems like every week we open the newspaper and there's more extraordinary discoveries coming from Egypt. I mean, just um, just earlier this week they had a huge announcement of thirty coffins that were found yes, at a site in Luxor, and it's the, one of the largest caches or or collections of coffins. That's been found in, o- in over a hundred years. Yeah. Um, so just Egypt continues to surprise and amaze, and I think will will in perpetuity. Yeah. How was that site overlooked? So so that site was found at an area called the Asasif, which is on the west bank, across from Luxor and Karnak temples, pretty close to the Valley of the Kings, and it's a major burial site. Um, and you know, there's just so much to find in Egypt. I've estimated that I personally believe, and I've done the math too. We've excavated less than one percent of what's hmm. there. So I think we're going to find other other caches like it in the future. Yeah, is this all still Middle Kingdom? So that's from the new. That, so I think that's from um, the the later New Kingdom and the Third Intermediate Period. So about three thousand or so years ago. Yeah. Uh, are you finding anything from the old kingdom? Uh, or? Yeah, so the, the so the site of Lish itself is um, uh, so that's 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 predominantly Middle Kingdom. Um, but I've done some mapping work and, and archaeological work um, at other sites that that are from the old kingdom, you know, the Great Pyramid Building Age. Um, and I've worked a lot on the west coast of Sinai, where we work on a fort that dates to four thousand five hundred years ago. Wow, that's amazing. What have you found so far? Don't you want to say? <laughs> oh no! I mean, I, we, 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 it's been published. It's been talked about. So that, so that site. Um, so it's a site. So it, everyone looks at the pyramids and they're amazed because they see stone. What they don't see are the you know the hundreds of chisel marks um, used to carve the stone, and mm-hmm. and of course to to make those tools, the Egyptians needed copper, and they got copper from Sinai. So they would go on big expeditions from the royal house. They'd sail across the Red Sea. They'd park in a, a sort of a desert area, and then they'd hike inland to mines where they would have to mine copper, and they got turquoise as well. Um, and so this fort site was really their military barracks, which was a launching point for these expeditions to uh, inland to get copper. So I tell people, you know, yes, they're made of stone, but, but humans and, and, and metal built the pyramids. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting, too, is that s- some of these uh, uh, cities that you uncovered were, were trade centers, so you find artifacts from all over the region. That's, that's right. We find, we find things from ancient Nubia, you know, modern-day Sudan. We find things from Greece. We find things from Libya. Um, we find things from, from you know, Iraq and else, elsewhere. It just shows just how vibrant um, the, the ancient world was, and we tend to think we're, we're very international and cosmopolitan today, but this, this has been going on for thousands of years. Yeah, 
Was the extent of that trade known before? And yeah, I think you know. I think certainly in Egyptology, um, you know, we we uh, we're getting a much better understanding of of where things come from. But as you know, with all these new scientific tests you can do to test the exact um, place, you know, you, have, you look at the chemical composition of objects and we're able to pinpoint exactly where they came from. So we're getting a much more accurate uh, picture. Of, of trade in the ancient world because of these new scientific tools. Yeah, and as, found as, as far as the artifacts that are found, are, ceramics are sort of key to understanding some of this? That's right. I, I joke. I say that the, the pottery is the Tupperware of the ancient world. They're going to be future archaeological Tupperware specialists. Uh, and, uh, and the pottery, because we can look at its make and how it's painted and how it's made, um, you know, we... And, and, and pottery is specific to particular regions and particular time periods, so we're able to look at all the pottery and get a really good sense of, of trade, for sure. Yeah. But, and, of course, it's not just limited uh, to, to Egypt. Now, you're in something called the Global Explorer, which you started, which is absolutely amazing. Uh, at the TED conference, you introduced today because you won the TED Prize. That's right. So, yeah, so it's, a, it's an online citizen archaeology platform that allows anyone in the world to look at satellite imagery and help us map sites. Um, so we started in Peru, mm-hmm. and today we've had almost 95,000 users from, I think, 120 countries. We're only missing a couple. Um, and they found almost 20,000 potential archaeological features, and 700 of them have been confirmed to be major, major sites. So we are um, going to India next. We're rebuilding our platform. We'll launch next year. We're really, really excited about it. And the goal really is to engage the world and to show everyone not only can you be an explorer and can you contribute to archaeology, but you can you really can help. You know, and we, we can't do this alone. We need everyone engaged. And the whole point of our organization is to make the world realize that, you know, archaeology is so important and there's so many lessons to teach us today. Yeah, and you, and you say users from 9 to 90. Yeah, yeah, kids, kids, kids from five to one hundred and five. We have we have people every age possible using it. We want it to be for everyone. Yeah, you mentioned that ninety-one-year-old woman who was on the site and actually did an amazing job. Yeah, so this this amazing woman named named Doris May Jones from Cleveland, Ohio, mm-hmm. and she's one of our top super users. And super she's user. just uh, she's a force of nature. I've gotten to speak to her <laughs> over Skype and. You know, what a joy that this woman who's in her 90s in, in the heartland of America, you know, can help participate and help explore. So to me, that speaks to the, the power of what we're doing, you know, the idea that we can engage so many people and everyone can really contribute to, yeah, to understanding the past. That's amazing. That's amazing. To do that, to do that and you go through a training process, I know, it's, I went on there and I didn't, I, I didn't make it past the first level, but um, it, it's a little bit complicated, but you learn to identify what you're seeing in those sites. And there's 10 levels or something you can go up in, in terms of your learning. That's, that's right. So there's a tutorial right now. Um, and, and, yeah, you, the, more, the more sites you look at, the better you get. And what we're doing is we're rebuilding the platform. We got a lot of feedback from our users, and there'll be a literal sandbox in the next version of the platform. So when you go on and you do kind of look at 50 or so images and you'll get feedback, you know, congratulations, yes, you've seen the thing, or, oh, no, you said it was this, but really it's, a, it's this, and this is why you might get it wrong. So the point, you know, we're growing and evolving and learning and figuring out, um, you know, what's really going to work best for our users. That's that's really amazing. Uh, as far as the the Peru expedition, uh, what you mentioned, what came out of that, I guess that, that's uh, the seven hundred sites. That, that's right, and we've we've collaborated with archaeologists on the ground who are now taking uh, drones mm-hmm. and going and mapping some of the sites that are crowd found, um, and in a collaborative project with a gentleman who's now the minister of. Um, 
culture in Peru, Luis Jaime Castello, he with with drones and mapping an area um, where we mapped uh, for on the on the platform found fifty new Nazca lines. Amazing. They're very, they're very pro archaeology in Peru. Yeah, very. They're they're doing amazing work there. Yeah, and uh, that's that's totally amazing. And and some of the big the big dig started now on that as a result of that. So I think I think more archaeological um, survey works. Yeah. So for the work we're doing, we did in Peru, and certainly what we're doing in India. You know, what we're we're partnering with um, the ministries and, and cultural organizations in India. It's the archaeological survey, and really we take uh, direction from those governments. So in India. Um, you know, we've been asked to help with um, site documentation, so providing more complete, um, uh, uh, helping the government with a, create a more complete archaeological site inventory, because if they have that, they can be more effective at protecting sites and developing long-term plans. Yeah. So hopefully, you know, over time, um, we'll be able to, to do some excavation work there, but the first step is always to inventory what, what, what's there. Yes, and protecting sites that are in war zones, for that matter. Yeah, I mean, there's so many parts of the world, of course, that um, that are undergoing conflict, and now with climate change, uh, even more sites are threatened. Mm-hmm. I noticed in one of your digs, actually, you, you discovered an example of an earlier climate change that affected the civilization there. Yes, so in, in Egypt's old kingdom, so you know, you look at the Great Pyramid Age, and then and then pyramids stopped being built for a little while, and the reason is, you know, Egypt was experiencing sort of massive economic. Uh, issues, political strife, um, social strife, but on top of that, you have um, kind of like an ancient El Nino effect, and then and the Nile floods, the Nile River um, flooding was low for a number of years, and that greatly impacted um, the ancient Egyptians' of course ability to um, you know to to get their food. Uh, and so the old kingdom, in effect, collapsed, and that's something that we found um, when when I was doing my mapping and survey work, and we were able to determine that there was a huge drop in sites at that time, which shows really people were abandoning sites. They were desperate. Yeah, well, that's truly amazing. So this could be our old kingdom, period. I, I kind of hope not, but, you know, maybe we'll learn, maybe we'll learn something from everything that's, that's going on and hopefully clean up, clean up our act and, and, and think about how we can do better. And another really great thing about about you and about this whole episode, the whole archaeology from space and everything, is getting more women involved in archaeology. That that's right. You know, all over all over the world. You know, for certainly for the last hundred plus years, it's been predominantly men and predominantly wealthier men, and and that's beginning to change. So the idea is that with with Global Explorer, um, you know, it's an avenue for for lots of girls and and kids around the world to participate, and it doesn't matter. What background you have, you know, as long even if your public library has a computer, you can participate. Um, because our world, you know, it's, it, it needs more girls, it needs more diversity, and, you know, you just have to widen, particip- widen participation. Yeah, fantastic. Global Explorer. And uh, this site is up now, and people can go on there, and they can, they can join up. Right and go yes, through the training. Totally, it's totally free, and there's tons of. I would, if there are any any teachers listening or any educators, we have tons. We've had tons of uh, classrooms participate. So please um, get your get your students involved. We have great resources. If you want to email us, it's info at globalexplore.org. The information's on the platform. Um, don't hesitate to reach out if we can. We can provide any other information. Yeah. What's next for you as far as site work? So we're hoping to uh, to con- of course continue uh, continue our work in uh, in Egypt, you know, and and we really really are busy at Global Explorer. We're deep deep in planning um, in terms of 
redoing the platform. We're going to be doing a lot of education in India, a lot of outreach, um, and partnering with different organizations on the ground. So, yeah, we're... We're we're keeping very very busy, um, but I can't I can't wait to get back to dig in Egypt. That's yeah. what I look forward to. It's and it says about about you just on the flyleaf here. Professor uh, Sarah Parkak is a professor of anthropology at the University of Alabama, Birmingham. President and founder of Global Explorer, co-director of the Joint List Mission in Egypt. Her remote sensing work has been the focus of three BBC specials covering Egypt, ancient Rome, and the Vikings. She's a fellow of the Society Society of Antiquaries, a 2014 TED Senior Fellow, the winner of 2016 TED Prize. And national degree of uh, and a national geographic explorers. Imagine if you had applied yourself, what you could have done, Sarah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I tell people it's hard. It's hard work. It's a lot of a lot of luck and good and, and good fortune. But you know, now it's it's my job to make sure the world can um, can help with exploration. And is it the goal is to map the entire world? Is that possible? That's right. Over the next ten years or, or, or so, um, and, and now what we're doing is we're incorporating machine learning into our platform yeah. so that um, it'll go it'll go even faster. Great. Thank you, Sarah, so much. The book is Archaeology from Space. Great. Thank you, Sarah Parker. Pleasure speaking with you. Thanks.